from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. Standing out from the rest of the field. Don't sit back in the corner. Raise your hand. Say yes. Step forward. How one woman in agriculture is making a name for herself as a top producer. As tensions rise in the Red Sea, so does the cost and time it takes to move ag products. They're volatile is probably the right word. As California contends with a monster of a storm. We could use a break from Mother Nature, that's for sure. The impact and when it will end right now on Ag Day. Ag Day, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when the testing grounds meet the proving grounds. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths. Happening right now, California is being hit hard by rain, wind, and flooding. It's being caused by a monster atmospheric river system, and it's not over yet, with some parts of the state expected to receive close to half a year's worth of rain by today. Ivan Rodriguez joins us with an update. Millions of people across Southern California remain under a high risk of excessive rainfall. Early Monday morning, crews were busy rescuing people across the state trapped by flooded waters. Nicholas Pasculi, spokesperson for Monterey County, says even though they have high capacity in their reservoirs, they'll be keeping an eye on water levels. The biggest thing we're concerned about is watching the river levels, of course, um, because oftentimes the rivers don't reflect the amount of, of water that's come down until the water comes off the mountains and the, and the watershed. Parts of Los Angeles, where the heaviest rain is located, are forecast to receive close to half a year's worth of rain by Tuesday. By the end of the storm, parts of Southern California could see between 4 to 8 inches of rain, with higher elevations seeing 8 to 16 inches, and a considerable amount of snow in mountains and foothills. Officials warning for the potential for life-threatening flash flooding and landslides in central and southern parts of the state. Some people who were preparing for this storm felt there was only so much they could do. We can be prepared as we want, or like the county could do whatever they want, but like Mother Nature takes its course. The storm is expected to pound Southern California through Monday night. We could use a break from Mother Nature, that's for sure. I'm Ivan Rodriguez reporting for Ag Day TV. Meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht continuing our team coverage. And Matt, one good thing coming with this system, a lot of snow to aid California's snowpack. Yeah, yeah, in terms of the amount of snow or even rainfall coming in on the West Coast, you can see with this map, this is Tuesday at 12 p.m. The blue isn't going to change all that much. The green isn't going to change all that much. Rather, it's the intensity that will change. At times, a significant amount of snowfall in the higher terrain, as well as a significant amount of rainfall as well in the lower elevations. All of this rain, the snow, this moisture is going to try to move to the east. But once again, that blocking pattern that we had last week is going to keep a lot of that uh, moisture, a lot of the rain in different parts of the country. I mean, we're going to see this low pressure system escape more to the north, which is going to drag the rain across the United States, but something that uh, isn't going to be as significant as what they're seeing on the West Coast. Let's go ahead and take a look at what's going on in uh, California. This is uh, Soda Springs. Uh, just how much snow are we talking about in California? The UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab sharing an update. It says the area has received 20.7 inches of snow over the past two days. Quick math, that's about 10 inches of snowfall each day with a whole lot more on the way. I'll have more in your forecast coming up. 
Shipping problems in the Red Sea are starting to impact U.S. ag companies, creating new supply chain issues. Agnes Michelle Rook joins us with an update. Michelle, we're learning more about specific companies impacted by this. We sure are, Clinton. While we aren't seeing a shipping crisis anything like we did in COVID, the regional supply chain disruptions have been growing the last year and a half, with shipping routes compromised around the globe. Now, that's having an impact on ag exports and imports and could drive up the price of various food products. The problems in the Red Sea are having a domino effect on global shipping issues and serving as a headwind for U.S. food and agricultural exports and imports. Protein companies are being hit, including Tyson Foods, Hormel Foods, and Pilgrim's Pride Corporation, who export to Asia, as well as Latin American protein companies such as JBS, Marfrig, and Minerva Foods. We're having disruptions now in not only in the Gaza-Israeli area, but the Red Sea area, which I realize that a small percent of our, of our exports go to that part of the world, but these, this, these supply chains are global. So where there's a kink in the armor in one part of the world, if it goes on long enough, it usually ends up affecting other parts of the world. So we need to keep an eye on that as well. Riding south around Africa's Cape of Good Hope adds another 16 days to transit time. That's nearly doubled shipping rates in the Red Sea and increased rates in other areas of the globe as well. They're volatile is probably the right word. They're up and then they're down and there's another issue in another area. So the volatility is almost as bad as the actual rate itself. And that's uh, in the last uh, year and a half has been, been more of a concern. U.S. grain and oilseed exports have also faced global choke points for shipping. And the Red Sea has become part of that story. With essentially ag not hardly getting through the Panama Canal, we were rerouting a lot of shipping through the Red Sea, through the Suez Canal. Um, and you can see that in, in the shipping data. Um, but that's obviously had its challenges with uh, the tax on shipping. So it's created more longer transit times um, for to, to get beans to Asia. Food companies importing from countries like Asia face the greatest risk from shipping disruptions, including coffee, spices, and even specialty sauces from Italy. Higher transportation costs will likely get tacked on at the grocery store. I'm Michelle Rook reporting for Ag Day. All right, thanks, Michelle. Dry weather toward the beginning of the growing season didn't dampen Brazil's exports. New numbers show Brazil, which is already the world's largest exporter of soybeans, hit a record high for soybean exports in January. Soybean exports for the first four weeks of January reached a new record of 2.6 million tons. And according to the January Ag Economist Monthly Monitor, it's a trend that could continue despite projections for lower production. The survey of ag economists from across the country found 93% believe Brazil will remain the world's largest exporter of soybeans this year. On the soybean side, it was a, a clear indication that, 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 that Brazil would continue to be the lead exporter of, of um, soybeans. It, they're increasing their acreage. Um, there's a rebound in there. Um, even with poor weather, there's going to be a, um, a re recovery in, in their production. Corn is more iffy, and it will depend on the, the, the final second crop there, the safrina crop, and how that um, um, ends up. As Lapp mentioned, economists' views are more mixed on corn. 43% of economists think Brazil will remain the world's top exporter of corn. A strange ag crime uncovered to tell you about what's become known as Operation Blizzard. Police in Clifton, Texas, southwest of Dallas-Fort Worth, naming their investigation that after they say 
They learned several people were selling meth out of a local Dairy Queen restaurant. They report officers were able to set up undercover drug buys from the location several times, and that led police to suspect some of the employees were also selling drugs at other locations around Clifton and that even more people were involved. In all, the 10 people you see here were arrested and charged in the investigation. It's reported the workers involved in the drug ring no longer work for Dairy Queen. It was a mixed but somewhat quiet day for markets. We'll look at the latest trends coming up in markets now. And later, from building a farm to building industry demand, we'll meet a farmer being honored for her work in ag. New earnings numbers are out for Tyson Foods as the company says it's still evaluating current operations. In its first quarter release, Tyson beat market expectations for both revenue and profit. That sent shares to nine-month highs to start the week. This comes following last year's decision to close several chicken plants. Leaders at the biggest U.S. meat packer by sales says the decision to shutter facilities is paying off, adding that more closures could be on the way. Adjusted income in Q1 rose 150% compared to the previous year. However, Tyson's beef business posted an operating loss of $117 million. Soybeans making some gains to start the week, while wheat saw some losses on a stronger U.S. dollar. Agday's Michelle Rook joins us with an update in Markets Now. Grains ending mixed on Monday. Brian Grady with Pro Farmer is with us with some analysis. And Brian, uh, soybeans, uh, a little bit of a balance. Was that just kind of holding some support areas that we needed to? Yeah, more than anything, just corrected buying. Uh, we have USDA's reports coming up on Thursday, and and uh, traders have gotten short uh, um, soybeans. They're pretty heavily short meal and, and oil, and, and so um, they covered some short positions within the soy complex. But we also had some better export inspections that also kind of fueled a little bit of buying, didn't it? Yeah, the uh, export inspections for soybeans were the best that we've had in, in several weeks, and and uh, the monthly uh, numbers for January were a little bit stronger than anticipated, and, and so you add all that up, and a little bit of fundamental support there. Yeah, Monday kind of a sideways day in the corn, but we kind of got got caught there between higher soybeans and the lower wheat market, didn't we? Absolutely, uh, you know, soybeans pulled to the upside through the day session. Uh, wheat futures extended their overnight losses during daytime trade, and, and like you said, corn was just caught in the middle and didn't really go anywhere. Uh, just kind of tethered near unchanged. So we've been in about a ten cent trading range there between four forty and four fifty. What do you think could break us out of that? Anything? Uh, well, we need a bullish catalyst, and, and hopefully that would come from the demand side of things. But uh, we just haven't seen the the type of demand news that tells the market, hey. Uh, this thing is cheap enough yet. And if we get that, I think that uh, funds would actively cover short positions, but we just haven't seen enough of that yet. Yeah. And we said back, did we finally just hit some resistance on the charts or was that a dollar play or what? Yeah, the outside markets. Uh, so wheat is in particular um, susceptible to, to outside market plays, especially the dollar and with it up sharply today and the stock market down sharply. Uh, I, I think the wheat just kind of got caught up. You might also say that we had some squaring ahead of the WASD. Yeah, I, I think so. So we'll probably see that uh, ahead of Thursday's report, some more of that. Uh, the funds are heavily short across the grain and soy markets. And, and uh, so we'll see. Um, not anticipating much in, in the WASD report. Uh, this is just minor fine tuning from a demand perspective uh, for the U.S. balance sheets this month. And, and uh, most of the attention will be on South American production. But USDA is expected to be uh, well behind what the private estimates are there. 
No doubt. Thanks for joining us for Ingridi with Pro Farmer. We'll have more update coming up. I want to start off uh, kind of reiterating what we talked about just a little bit ago in uh, the blocking pattern. Last week, the ridge of high pressure set up uh, over the plains, over parts of the Midwest, which caused any kind of energy from the West Coast to drift to the south and undercut that ridge. This week, a little bit more traditional uh, in that a ridge of high pressure is going to be back down here towards the southeast. The stronger it gets, the more likely we'll see this low pressure system that we just talked about a little bit ago more you know, move more to the north. That's why I was mentioning that the uh, blocking pattern is going to be back, back towards the southeast, meaning that rainfall, that snowfall uh, possibility is going to be shifting more to the north Friday, Saturday, and into Sunday. And as we've talked about uh, last week, even the week before, things are starting to change. The pattern is starting to change back more to average in the second half of February. So after Valentine's Day, the second half of the month, that's when we're looking at uh, a little bit more average temperatures in and across the United States. Still packed with some cooler, colder air back up here to the north. That's where we may see some of the rain, perhaps even some snow along that dividing line. And this is next Monday and into Tuesday. So give you a look at that. The temperature outlook between the 12th and the 18th, everything kind of shifts back over towards the blue. Uh, but it's not all that extreme. Remember in January, it was all the way to the left in the entire United States was down below normal. Uh, this isn't going to be as extreme. In fact, the possibility is there through the 18th to have at or just above normal temperatures in and across Minnesota as well as Wisconsin. As we come back down here to the south, and that's where that cooler air will be coming through a little bit below average. And I want to remind you when we talk about a little bit below average, now that we're at the second half of February, the averages in general are starting to come back up. So again, there's the temperature outlook the 12th through the 18th. We'll start off in Kansas. McPherson, mostly cloudy, high around 57 degrees, low of 44. Elko, the rain and snow, high around 41, low of 32. And DeQueen, mostly sunny, high around 64 degrees. A city that was named after a Dutch explorer that wanted to Americanize his name to DeQueen. Arkansas. What could the dairy industry look like in 10 years? We have one prediction coming up next. And later, meet a farmer passionate about the future of the industry. We're off to Iowa as our profiles of top producer award winners continues in the country. What could the dairy industry look like in 10 years? One market researcher is weighing in. PMI says right now, globally, the industry is valued at more than $517 billion, and they say it's expected to grow at a compound annual growth rate of over 7%, which means a value of about $965 billion by the year 2034. Now, the company says as the global population continues to grow, the demand for convenient and nutritious food options, including dairy, has increased. It also says growing awareness of the nutritional benefits of dairy contributes to sustained demand. But it says there are issues that could continue to weigh on the market, including rising vegan and plant-based trends, supply chain disruptions, and price volatility. An interesting protest in Washington State. Farm workers actually rallying against a new overtime pay law. DairyHerd.com reporting 300 workers rallied against Washington State's agricultural 
overtime law that went into full effect on the first of the year. That's when farmers, including dairy producers, were required to begin paying overtime for any of their employees who worked more than a 40-hour week. Workers rallying at the state capitol to advocate for seasonal exceptions to those requirements. While the workers say they're not against being paid overtime, the group says the reality of the new law is their employers are capping their hours at 40 hours a week, resulting in less pay overall. However, that's not the case for all ag employees. DairyHerd.com talked with one dairy producer in Washington that's finding a way to make it work. To learn more, just look for this story online. Building a farm business is hard work, but helping to build an industry is even more difficult. We'll meet an Iowa farmer who took on the challenge and is being honored for her efforts next. Happening tonight, the Top Producer Awards will be handed out at this year's Top Producer Summit in Kansas City. And one award will shine a light on the important and growing role women are playing on the farm. This year's Women in Ag Award winner is Pam Johnson of Iowa. As a sixth generation Iowa farmer, Pam Johnson has been sharing agriculture's food, fiber, and fuel stories her entire life. I think I'll die being an advocate for agriculture. It's just part of who I am. She grew up on the farm, then went to college to be a nurse, but came back to the operation after marriage. Maurice and I were married back in the 70s, and like a lot of people, started out really small on a rented farm, 10 sows. Um, and we were in growth mode there then, and we've been in growth mode for the last 50 years. During that time, they grew their hog and grain operation to the nearly 1,200 acres of corn, soybeans, and CRP ground they farm today. We farrowed to finish hogs for 38 years and went out the door together um, every day and worked and worked in the, in the field together too. I used to be the grain cart driver and uh, when we raised pigs, you know, the partner who was out the door doing everything from farrowing to sewing up pigs, vaccinating, you name it, sorting, moving. Their growth also included adopting strip-till and no-till practices and embracing precision farming. Through the years, adapting to new net technology, not just with seed genetics, but also crop management practices and seeing ones that work better, and they certainly paid off this year on this farm during the drought, we had the best corn yield we've ever had. No-till, strip-till, cover crops, saving every drop of water. When Johnson's sons came home to farm after college, she became an even more active advocate for agriculture, as she realized farmers would not have a future with $2 corn. Building demand is not a spectator sport. That was when she became an early innovator and a voice for the ethanol industry. We learned about ethanol, but not only that, we learned about what can happen when farmers work together, and some of this stuff was farmer-owned, so who controls it, who owns it, who benefits. Johnson worked her way through leadership roles on the Iowa Corn Promotions Board and the National Corn Growers Association, becoming the first female president of NCGA, and her legacy is encouraging others to use their voice. Don't speck in the corner. Raise your hand, say yes, step forward, you can do it, right? So that's how I'm remembered is raise your hand, say yes. She says their success has given them the opportunity to give back and pay it forward, not just to her family, 
but to the agricultural industry and local community. That's why Pam Johnson is the 2024 Top Producer Women in Ag Award winner. And congratulations. Now we'll introduce you to the other finalists for Top Producer of the Year coming up later this week. And that's all the time we have this morning. We're sure glad you tuned in from all of us here at Ag Day. I'm Clinton Lewis. Have a great day.